IKT. I'm back in my old house, my little flat that I lived in when we first started making this podcast many years ago. Oh my God, blast from the past. I know. I hope that it doesn't mean that this show is going to automatically regress back into that rather underdeveloped vibe of our early episodes. I would say we still have an underdeveloped vibe, but yeah, sure. Yeah, and don't you dare go back and listen, listeners, to our first episodes. They are still there, but it's not worth it. How are you doing? I'm all right. My life has been quite boring this week. And actually, compounding how boring it is, the current talk of the town in Paris is this TV expose about these extremely fancy clandestine restaurants that have been operating for the Parisian elite. Oh, yeah. Basically, rich people have been going there while normal restaurants are closed to have like champagne and foie gras for like 400 euros, wearing all their fancy clothes and no masks. It's very outrageous and illegal. But it turns out that this has been happening on the same street as my office. Clearly you're not moving in the right circles. I know, this is the thing. I'm not part of the elite. I feel quite offended not to have been invited. Anyway, I also saw that you went viral this week on Twitter with a tweet about a Corona piñata and I felt very proud of you. Yeah, thank you. It's my sister-in-law's birthday piñata. She's just been smacking a giant virus, which I think is quite therapeutic. It seems great. And I thought it might be one of those few times on Twitter when a tweet has gone viral and there's not much scope for people to send you angry replies. <laughs> Did you like get any trolling? No, extremely minimal trolling. The biggest thing that came out of it was a conversation about whether the spike proteins on a coronavirus are actually red or if that's just like a sort of artistic choice that somebody made at some point at the beginning of the pandemic. Mm. And it turns out that's the case. We don't really know what colour those little spiky bits are on a coronavirus. But for some reason, at some point, somebody said, yeah, I'll just draw them red. And now they're often red. I think I've seen them being green as well somewhere else. The emoji is green. Ah, that's what it is. But anyway, enough about piñatas and naughty rich people. Uh, What's coming up this week? This week we're going to be talking about trains because it is officially the year of the train. Well, according to the EU, anyway. And to celebrate that year, some nice data journalists at the European Data Journalism Network have produced a study full of fascinating facts about cross-border rail links in Europe. We don't know that they're nice data journalists. They might be mean data journalists. Well, we'll be finding out later when we speak to our guest, Lorenzo Ferrari, who's going to be answering questions like which European cities are most well-connected by rail and what can we expect for Europe's rail networks in the coming years. I'm definitely missing crossing borders on trains, so I'm very excited to talk to Lorenzo later on in the show. And spoiler alert, he's very nice. I think I know who's had a bad week. Who is it? Yeah, it's been a bad, bad week for Mark Rutte, the caretaker prime minister of the Netherlands. And it's quite difficult to know where to start. But basically, this terrible week for longtime prime minister Mark Rutte stems back to an event on the 25th of March when a coalition scout... A scout is a person who conducts interviews with party leaders following an election to work out possible coalition formations. That's a fun job. Yeah, well, wait until you hear what happened. (laughs) Okay. One of the scouts fled the government buildings in a rush after she received an unexpected positive coronavirus test result. And as she left in shock, she accidentally exposed a page of typed up notes from one of her discussions with the party leaders. 
is that textbook political error allowing secretive papers to be photographed and then having that text published all over the media within hours. Why do politicians always do this? Like, why do they have these transparent folders? Why don't they just put things in like old fashioned paper folders so you can't see anything? Yeah, well, in this case, I kind of feel a bit sorry for her because she had just found out she has coronavirus and she suffers from two autoimmune disorders so Uh, i think understandably she was in a bit of a state of shock fair enough but this piece of paper had one particularly striking sentence on it that caught everyone's attention it said posici omsicht funksi elders which means position of omsicht who's a politician function elsewhere In other words, someone in one of their meetings seemed to be suggesting that one Peter Omtzigt, an MP, should be found a job somewhere else. I.e. not in the coalition. No, i.e. not in parliament. So maybe in the coalition. So he is a Christian democratic politician who has a mixed legacy in supporting a few kind of strange conspiracy theories. But he's also sometimes been incredibly effective at critically holding the government to account And most significantly, he was one of the key figures in bringing down Mark Rutte's cabinet a few months ago by exposing an absolutely atrocious and arguably racist benefit scandal from the Dutch tax office. Ah. So this piece of paper that was photographed seemed to be suggesting that someone, at the time unknown, was proposing that well-known political move of giving a job to an enemy or a difficult colleague somewhere else. In this case, it would presumably be a job that would take Omtzigt out of Parliament, where he's had such a crucial role in holding the government to account. It happens, I think, in the second season of Borgen. Do you remember my favourite political TV show where they send someone to Europe who's like a really difficult party leader and like pretend they're giving him a really good job, but actually it's just to get him out of the way? I don't remember that. You've just reminded me I want to restart binging Borgen again from the beginning. I really recommend it. It was one of my favourite lockdown activities. And yet it's not perhaps the most unusual move in politics internationally, and it might seem strange to people from abroad why information like this being leaked would have such huge repercussions. Surely this happens all the time. But in this case, you have to realise the scale of the benefit scandal and quite how significantly successive governments and judges and even some journalists have failed to realise quite how many people's lives were being ruined by this policy from the tax department that accused tens of thousands of parents falsely of fraud, many of whom seem to have been targeted specifically for having dual nationalities. It really is a scandal, and it took years and years for something to be done about it, even when it started to become clear that something was amiss. Some people were sent bills for over €100,000 in repayments and fines wrongly. Some of the individual stories are just so heartbreaking, and I'm not exaggerating in any way when I say that many lives were ruined. So this very MP, Peter Omsicht, was talking about this emerging scandal in Parliament already back in 2016, with some of the victims sitting up in the balcony of the chamber, watching on, thinking something was finally going to be done about this, and the policy would be changed. And shamefully for Rutte and his cabinet, and the parliament as a whole, the policy continued and it took until 2020 for the true scale of the scandal to be realised by most of the country, which ultimately led to the resignation of the government a few months before this year's election. Yeah, I remember us talking about this a, a couple of months back. So the government resigned over that scandal. They are still in place though, right? 
Yes, they stay in place as a kind of caretaker government whilst the election happens and the coalition deals are made, which can take months. And in the meantime, they're just meant to manage things day to day, but not pass any big controversial policy bills. So Mark Ritter was implicated in that scandal, but he then did go on to win an election, right? Yes. The benefit scandal was like strangely mainly absent from the campaign and Rutter seems to have got away with it. Of course, it's important to realise that winning an election in the Netherlands just means being the biggest of many parties or Mm -hmm. the least small party. His party won with 22% of the vote. So a significant number of voters didn't seem to prioritise the benefit scandal when choosing uh, who to vote for. And maybe the coronavirus crisis had something to do with it. People have their own day-to-day problems right now. And not to let Rutter off, because he was Prime Minister during this terrible scandal, but it wasn't just Rutter and his party that were implicated. Um, Many politicians across the political spectrum failed in this case. So jump forward to this past week, and suddenly a lot of people seem to really care about the scandal. And... The reason is because, going back to that piece of paper that the scout accidentally allowed to have photographed, it emerged last week that the comment about Peter Omsicht being given a position elsewhere was in fact from a meeting with Mark Rutter himself. And this contradicted what Rutter had said to the media in his initial responses to the piece of paper. He had said that he had not mentioned Omsicht at all in these secret cabinet negotiations, but it came out that he had. So he lied he claims he'd just forgotten and it's not the first time he's used this forgetting as a convenient cover to something that could also be a lie. Although he's not the only one who's had a very forgetful last week. Um, The scout who had corona, Ollengren, also couldn't recollect this part of the conversation, nor could her co-scout. There seems to have been an incredible case of collective amnesia in this meeting. and Nobody can remember it ever being mentioned. That is weird, isn't it? Very weird. But we now know, due to the release of the minutes, that it was definitely mentioned and by Mark Ritter. And it's that old adage that the cover-up is worse than the crime, or at least it is for Ritter, who now seems to be in big trouble. And what does that big trouble look like? Well, there was an absolutely epic 14-hour debate in Parliament last week where Rutter and the two scouts had to defend their collective amnesia. It looked at one point like Rutter might lose a vote of no confidence, which he did eventually survive narrowly by three votes, only to then lose a censure motion from Parliament thumpingly. So there's a lot of uncertainty now, and uh, his political future has been written off by many. One of his current coalition partner parties has ruled out going into another coalition with him if he's still leader. So he's in a very tricky spot. Wow. It seems kind of crazy because we've had all of these colourful ways of describing like the inevitability of Mark Rutter staying as Prime Minister forever. Like He gets called Teflon Mark because nothing sticks to him. He got called the Japanese knotweed of Dutch politics because he's supposedly impossible to get rid of. So it would be really weird if this is the thing that is like fatal to his career. Someone pointed out on Twitter that his moniker Teflon Mark about the non-stick material, that as soon as the non-stick material is damaged, it becomes toxic. Wow. That's such a satisfying metaphor. It really is, isn't it? Yeah, and it seems like his coating short is damaged. And what's going to happen now? We don't know. Everything is possible. Um, there could be new elections. Eventually, the only thing that seems pretty definite is that there will be more delay. The Netherlands isn't the quickest country at forming governments anyway, but this seems like it's going to slow everything down even further. 
I mean, maybe in a few weeks everyone will have forgotten Ritter's lie slash memory loss. His party the favour day are sticking with him for now, but there really aren't many options for them to form a government. There could be a minority government formed if the other two big coalition partners decide to stick with him. But Rutter is known to hate minority governments and the Vevide have a significantly worsened negotiating hand now. It's also worth mentioning that Peter Omsicht, the guy at the centre of all of this, is actually a member of one of the two bigger current coalition partners, which complicates things even further. So is he going to survive... I'd say maybe it's possible he could survive. But if he does, I wouldn't expect him to last that long and certainly not for an entire term. In just under a year, Rutter would become the longest ever serving prime minister in the Netherlands. Maybe he just wants to reach that milestone. But there's also a few parliamentary inquiries that are due in the next few months, which could be very critical of Rutter and his previous coalition. So even if he manages to cobble together a coalition it would almost certainly be pretty unstable. So bad week for Mark Rutter. Well, thank you so much for explaining this to me because I did not understand this scandal at all. And I think it was quite hard from outside the Netherlands to work out like why this thing was so scandalous. There's this piece of paper. He said he's forgotten this thing. Is it really that bad? Yeah, I think there was a tendency to be a bit sort of scathing about it and be like, this isn't a real scandal. You know, I live in a country where we have real scandals. We have Sarkozy, for God's sake. So thank you for explaining it to me. It feels a lot clearer now. It is kind of strange on the surface that this is the thing that is like causing such a problem when you see that like Boris Johnson has had a scandal in the UK this week of probably giving money to someone he was having an affair with while he was London mayor. It's a real scandal. Yeah, it does sound like a more juicy scandal. But the benefit scandal at the heart of this makes it really, really serious and can sometimes get lost in all the nuance about these pieces of paper and coronavirus. Mm. Who's had a good week? Can you cheer us up, Katie? I'll give it a go. It has been a good week for Viosa Osmani. She's had a good week. She is the newly elected president of Kosovo, the second woman to serve as president since the country declared independence from Serbia back in 2008. And that in itself is pretty good news. A second female president. I live in a country that has never had a female president. But it's being seen as a super positive news story. Osmani is super popular and charismatic. She's extremely capable. She is a law professor. She speaks a bunch of languages. And she's only 37, which seems quite young to be presidenting. She's just one of those people that makes you think like, oh, I haven't really done much in my life. And on top of being a law professor, uh, people have been impressed by her style of politics. She used to be the Speaker of Parliament and she's very, very independent. She's spoken out really strongly against corruption. And she's also seen as a really great role model for young women in quite a patriarchal society. And that's something she actually spoke about quite emotionally in her victory speech. She said, today, Kosovo elected a female president. Girls have the right to be whoever they want. Every dream of yours can become a reality. So it feels like a really good, hopeful moment at a time when we already need good, hopeful moments. What's the position of President of Kosovo like? Is it one of these ceremonial roles or does she actually have some power? Yeah, it is more ceremonial, but she is commander of the armed forces. Uh, and she's expected to be quite visible on the international stage for the next five years and talk about foreign policy quite a lot. She's also, I think, going to be quite visible in general because she is so popular, but also because it feels like Kosovo is going through this quite big shift at the moment. So she has replaced the last president, Hashem Tachi, 
He was a guerrilla leader fighting for independence during the war in the 90s. And he actually resigned in November because he is facing war crimes charges at the International Criminal Court. And Viosa, she was not only a fierce critic of the last president, but she's seen as part of a new generation of politicians that are trying to move on from the war and are focusing a lot more on tackling corruption, which is a really massive problem in Kosovo. And in that way, she's quite closely aligned with Albin Kurti, the new prime minister. He's prime minister again, actually. He was briefly prime minister for a few months last year. He is from this left-wing progressive party called Fetvendosia, which won a landslide in February. They've taken over from the Conservatives. And the new cabinet has six women out of 15 ministers. We've got a female president. So it feels like quite a shift. So is she and the Prime Minister pulling in the same direction? Do they want the same things? Yes and no. They were actually rivals before. Osmani originally wanted to be Prime Minister herself, and she's not from the same party as Kurti. But the two of them ended up going into the elections in February together in an alliance, and he pushed for her to be named President. Uh, They do share one really important message. They've both spoken really passionately about the need to tackle corruption. One big thing that they don't see eye to eye on is Serbia. So Kosovo used to be a province of Serbia before the war, and Serbia still officially doesn't recognise Kosovo as a separate country, even though it effectively is, and most countries around the world recognise it. And that whole situation, it creates loads of problems for people. A friend of the show, Andy McDowell, who's worked a lot in the region, I was chatting to him on WhatsApp yesterday, and he was saying that in northern Kosovo, people often have to take the number plates off their cars because it creates problems if you're driving a car that looks like it's registered in the wrong place. Kurti has said that normalising the relationship between the two countries isn't a big priority for him, and Serbia just needs to recognise that Kosovo is an independent country. The new president, Osmani, she says it is a big priority for her. She wants to have a dialogue with this much bigger neighbour. The two countries did sign this agreement last year, supposedly promising to improve their economic relationship. It was actually the White House that brokered that deal. And Donald Trump at the time talked about it like it was the most historic thing ever, but it hasn't really gone anywhere. So, yeah, we'll have to see if this new president might inject a little bit more energy into this whole Serbia and Kosovo sorting out their beef process. And that would be really good because both Serbia and Kosovo eventually want to join the EU and they can't really do that until they patch things up. We have a few more people to thank this week for becoming Patreon supporters. Big thanks to Eva, Dorota and Anna Yorick for increasing her pledge. You can join this lovely crew of people by heading to patreon.com forward slash Europeans podcast and donate as little as two euros or dollars or pounds or some other currencies a month and help keep this show going, which really wouldn't be continuing without your support. So please do that. Please do. Um, If you do, you get to come and hang out with us in our exclusive Facebook group which is actually more fun than it sounds. I know Facebook is a bit lame these days, but it's genuinely the best thing about Facebook, in my opinion. And depending on how much you pledge, you might even get a much-coveted angry Macron tote bag. And if you donate 100 euros a month, then you can come to our secret illegal restaurant in Paris. (laughs) Trains! Trains. We really like trains on this podcast. When you think about what brings us together as a continent, 
I mean, trains often come up. Like for lots of young Europeans, it is interrading around the continent that gives you that first taste of like properly meeting people from neighboring countries. And let's be honest, often like hooking up with someone from a neighboring country as well, like in a bar in Prague or wherever. So it's exciting. Trains have often been the gateway for ordinary Europeans to experience each other's cultures. You did that whole interrail thing, didn't you, Dominic? Yes. Let's not talk about it, though, because it was a traumatic experience (laughs) from my teenage years. Yeah. Didn't you have a big fight with the friends that you went on and it was already tense and not fun? It was terrible. Maybe you and I will go on an interrail trip when this is all over and... Heal some wounds. Heal some wounds. But yeah, this whole like connected culture thing via trains, it isn't something that arrived with interrail. A few months ago, maybe even a year ago, we interviewed the historian Orlando Figes about how it was the railways that started giving Europe this shared culture back in the 19th century because people started crossing borders a lot more. So this is a continent of trains, but your ability to actually use this amazing form of transport does depend a lot on where you live on the continent. And that is where Lorenzo comes in. Lorenzo Ferrari, he is an Italian data journalist. He works for the European Data Journalism Network, and he has been crunching the data to try and work out just how connected this continent is. We are all supposed to be taking trains instead of planes for obvious climate apocalypse reasons. And in some places, that is a lot easier than others. Uh, Albania, for example, has no direct international train connections with any other country, which seems kind of crazy. But yeah, the EU is supposedly in the midst of this big push to make us all use trains. There is this much trumpeted plan for a new trans-European express to revive travel after the pandemic. A massive new network of passenger trains that will all be able to take and visit each other, which sounds very nice. But it's definitely not where we're at right now. So we were super interested to hear where things actually stand. And we rang up Lorenzo in beautiful Brescia, not too far from Milan, to find out. Lorenzo, you were speaking to us from Brescia. How hard would it be for you to get to another country from where you are right now on a train? It's not super hard if COVID weren't around, because from where I'm speaking, there are, I think, three or four trains going abroad, like to Vienna and Paris and a couple of other cities and countries. So it's not too bad, but uh, of course there are cities which are much more connected and I'm I'm a bit envious (laughs) for the people who live in those cities. Could you just give us some of the big trends? Where's the best place in Europe to live if you want to travel internationally by train? By far the best place to live is Vienna. (laughs) And I'm thinking of moving there once COVID is over. But In general, we looked at all the cross-border rail links that exist in Europe, and you can see a very clear divide between, let's say, Central Europe, so Austria and Germany, Czechia, Slovakia to some extent, and even a couple of other countries like Switzerland and Slovenia, and basically all the rest. You can call them peripheral regions of Europe, so the, the Iberian Peninsula, the Balkans, the Nordic countries, and the connections there are really much poorer in terms of number of connections, which in some cases are really like one or two connections to foreign countries, or in the, let's say, quality of connections. So maybe you do have trains, but they are very slow, they are low quality to some extent. They're not really an option for many people. They may be expensive on one hand and slow on the other hand. So people, of course, take the plane or catch the coach, the, the, the bus. I guess it makes geographical sense that Central Europe would be really well connected because it is in the middle of everything. But this is something that goes way back to the days of the Habsburg Empire, right? 
Yes, it is. So there is this historical element. If you look at those railway maps, you see there's a lot of railway lines that were uh, built but the late 19th century or the beginning of the 20th century, because, of course, borders were different, so they, they were connecting different parts of the empire, and nowadays those parts belong to different countries. So, of course, those railway lines are still there, but now they are not national anymore, they are international lines. It's not obvious that they are still served, because, of course, there used to be much more railway lines in Europe. Many of them are not used anymore. So the fact that they are still used means that there are still people who are interested or who need those lines, who need to go abroad for some reason or another. And in this way, uh, looking at where there are cross-border rail links tells you something about where there are cross-border relations more in general. So there are countries which are next to one another but have no railway connection where you do find a lot of railway connection. That could be a sign of the fact that there are strong connections, strong relations and strong flows of people and trade and so on between the two countries. Obviously, planes are still more popular than trains or used more than trains. Can you imagine a future in which more people travel internationally within Europe by train than by plane? Or do you think that's fantasy? The, the EU itself is promoting train as a you know, transport that is more sustainable and greener than planes. And I think there's a lot of investments that uh, are being done in the field in order to improve the infrastructure and you know make train connections easier and faster and more comfortable for travelers. And also, you can see that quite a few companies are planning to expand their services abroad. So Deutsche Bahn and the Austrian railways, but also the French and the Swiss railway companies, they announced the introduction of some new routes, especially on the international level. So like Berlin to Barcelona or Amsterdam to Rome or these sort of things. Some of the countries which are very, very popular with tourists, like Spain or Greece, are incredibly poorly connected by trains. So there's a lot of work needed there. If you want to bring like Germans to the beaches in Spain by train, now it's not an option at the moment. So... Why not? Uh, at the end, really, there's no special reason why there is no direct connection between Germany and Barcelona right now. It's possible to have it, and probably there is people who would use it, but still it doesn't exist at the moment. One thing that I thought was crazy that I learned from your reporting is that there are several EU capitals that do not have any direct rail connections to foreign countries. Lisbon, Madrid, Athens, Sarajevo. Like, that seems crazy to me. We share this big landmass. How is it possible in 2021 that these cities are not connected to other countries by train? Spain and Portugal is, is really striking, I think. They are connected by just a couple of small regional trains and that's it. So yeah, from Lisbon, you cannot travel even to Spain. It used to be possible until recently. There used to be a train from Portugal to both Spain and France, but it was suspended with COVID and it was not really successful even beforehand. So it's not, I mean, it looks unlikely that it will be resumed in the near future. And the same goes for Greece. You do have a couple of connections from Thessaloniki, but again, they are quite poor and just in summertime and, and Athens is really cut off. In a way, it's 
more striking in Spain and Portugal in the sense that the entire Balkan Peninsula is quite poorly connected. I took the train down from Paris to Turin last summer during those heady days when travel was briefly a thing last year. And it was a really fun experience to take the train. It was amazing to just, you know, watch the landscape changing. But it was obviously way longer than the plane would have been. And what's perhaps more surprising is that it was way more expensive than the plane. Obviously, it needs to be cheaper than the plane if Europeans are going to be encouraged to switch to this more climate-friendly form of transport en masse. Is that part of the EU plans to make this rail revolution happen? Yeah, I think the logic behind the European Commission's initiatives and plans in this field is that we need to build a single market for rail in Europe, as we did for flying companies. And if we increase competition, as we did with Ryanair, Jet, and all, all those, there will be more low-cost companies also operating trains, and that will bring prices down for everybody. And this may be a wish we'll think into to some extent, but we do see that some low-cost train companies are starting to operate in uh, multiple countries. So I think last month, the, the French low-cost started to, to operate in Spain. It's supposed to be just the beginning. This, of course, only applies to routes which are interesting from a market perspective. So there are routes which are not really, you know, so much profitable. So that won't be the case. But for instance, like connections between large cities in Italy or Spain or France or I mean, in a few other countries, they will hopefully see an increasing number of companies operating them and lower costs. What is the train journey that you're most looking forward to taking once the pandemic has died down a bit and we're able to cross borders? I already had this plan before the pandemic uh, broke out and I hope to resume it as soon as possible. There's this fabulous train which links Nice in France to Moscow. It takes like two or three days, but it crosses basically the entire Europe. You go through Milan and then Vienna and then... wow. Poland and Warsaw and then finally in Moscow and just you have your own seat and you really see Europe passing by <laughs> the window and I hope I'll be able to, to make it soon. Thank you to Allegra on Twitter for flagging up this study for us. We're getting a lot of good ideas from our listeners at the moment, so keep them coming. This is a very nerdy thing to say, but I'm going to say it anyway because it's true. The European Data Journalism Network, their slogan is Europe Explained Through Data. And that is actually true. They have this great website, which is full of really interesting articles about things like how different European countries treat depression and how is Instagram's algorithm shaping what Europeans see when they're scrolling on their little telephones. It is a great website and it's available in 11 languages. So check it out at europeandatajournalism.eu. What have you been watching this week or listening to? Well, actually, I've been reading this week, so grown up. 
Oh, well done. I've been enjoying the latest edition of the Are We Europe magazine. This edition is the sports issue. And for anyone who knows me, uh, that might sound like a strange thing for me to enjoy because I'm not exactly an avid follower of sports. And yet they've managed to produce a really interesting magazine chock full of stories about sports that I actually enjoyed. As ever, it's beautifully produced with gorgeous illustrations and visual stories as well as long and short reads. I was particularly interested to read about the sport of stone lifting from the Basque country and the female grandmasters of chess in Georgia. If you've never had a copy of Are We Europe, then I really recommend getting your hands on one of these beautiful magazines from your local hipster magazine shop or online at their website, areweeurope.eu. Full disclosure, we are a part of their podcasting family and we are collaborating more and more with them to make the European world of podcasting ever richer. But the reason why we are collaborating with them is because we think what they're doing is so great and we have such a nice overlap with them. So I'm sure a lot of our listeners would enjoy this magazine. So go get it. I can't believe that we're promoting a sports magazine, but because it's all we Europe, it's acceptable. What have you been enjoying this week, Katie? Uh, I have been binge listening West Cork this week. You might have heard of this podcast series because it came out in 2018, but at the time it was only available on Audible, the Amazon-owned audiobook and podcast app. And I didn't have Audible at the time, so I didn't listen to it. But it's just in the past week been made available publicly via Acast, so you can download it for free over there at Acast. And I was really curious about it because, you know, I'm not one of these people that gravitates towards true crime stories. If I'm honest, I find the whole genre a bit weird and macabre. But some people have talked about the series as like Europe's answer to serial. So I really wanted to check it out. Have you heard it yet? No, I've actually not heard about it even. It was quite a big deal when it came out. um, But I guess because it was only on Audible, it didn't turn into like a big sort of serial style craze. But it is often compared to serial in terms of quality. It's about a story, actually, that I come across as a reporter in France, so I really wanted to check it out. It's about the murder of Sophie Toscan Duplantier. She was a French woman, a TV producer, and she was the wife of Daniel Toscan Duplantier, who was a very, very well-known French film producer. He worked with Fellini and Godard and all of these people. So they were a well-known couple. And Sophie was murdered at her holiday home in Ireland in 1996. It was a very brutal killing and it was never solved. No one's ever gone to prison for it. And because of that, it has become a source of fascination in both Ireland and in France. So the podcast does that classic thing of, you know, trying to unravel what happened and assess all the evidence and meet all of the characters involved in that. But that wasn't actually what I really liked about the series, uh, although it was really gripping. And I think it's been dealt with quite sensitively, you know, given that this is a real person that we're talking about. This is a real tragedy that affected people's lives. The thing I really liked about West Cork is that it's really good at transporting you to this place, this very windswept and beautiful corner of Ireland. Sophie was part of this movement of foreigners that turned up around this time. Uh, They call them the blow-ins, which I think is such an evocative term. It's like these newcomers who just blown in on the wind. And this series is really good at painting a portrait of this community where the fabric of that community was changing quite quickly and people didn't necessarily all know each other like they used to. So I really recommend it uh, with reservations because I still feel a bit weird about true crime and probably always will. But it is a fascinating story and I think it's been really well told.
Well, my happy ending this week comes from Switzerland, where women in the Swiss military are no longer going to have to wear men's underwear. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, up until now, women in the Swiss military have had to wear the same standard issue men's underwear with their military uniform, which is perhaps indicative of the fact that women are significantly underrepresented in the Swiss military. They make up about 1% of service members, much, much lower than in most other European countries. It's happy news that women will finally be able to wear underwear which is designed for their bodies and they're going to be trying out a short summer pant and a long winter pant as part of the trial into this new women's underwear thing. Why? Yes, for now it is just a trial, but I guess even the trial is something to sort of celebrate. Why do they possibly need to trial women wearing women's underwear? This is so insane. I know, it's really insane. Um, results of the trial will be available in May, so we'll be awaiting those with bated breath. <laughs> but surely there's no going back now. But yeah, I do not understand why underwear needs trialing. Also, why can't people just wear the underwear that they personally find most comfortable? I also think it's pretty unlikely that they're going to find the perfect underwear for everyone's very different bodies. I'm sure there are some reasons why everyone has to wear the same underwear. Answers on a postcard, please. I'm glad I get to make these decisions for myself personally. Maybe we should have regulation Europeans podcast underwear. Maybe that should be our next Patreon benefit. <laughs> Branded underwear. Donate as little as five euros a month to receive our classic Europeans pants. If you are missing the bells now that Dominic has moved house, you can at least enjoy them visually because he posted a goodbye picture on our Instagram account. We are there at Europeans Podcast. There's also some raspberry tarts there. You can also find us on Twitter at Europeans Pod and Facebook under the Europeans Podcast. Thank you to our producers, Katz Laszlo, Priyanka Shankar and Andre Popovicu. Have an acceptable week, everyone. She hear me. Choo-choo!